the first world war. That's right, the first time the world got involved in a conflict. It was a very challenging time, and Abraham was brought into this to change it. We'll talk about that in about five minutes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hemmer. And I'm Jan. And this is Bible Discovery TV, which today we focus on chapter 14 of Genesis. Very, very interesting as we learn about how this war is going about. But first, Corey's here. Corey, what's going on? Today, we're going to be trying to understand covenants. Ryan? Well, in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham entrusts his eldest servant with a very important mission, to find a wife for his son Isaac. But just who is this servant of Abraham? Well, Genesis chapter 15, which we read today, gives us the answer. Very good. Look forward to that. Mm. Janice? Today, the blessings of God. All right. All of this is coming your way in the next half hour. Thank you for joining us and make time for us. But most importantly, let's listen to God. Genesis 14, 1 through 16. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedoliomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedoliomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedoliomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shave Kirathaim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to El Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedalaramur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went on their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Jew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night 
and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 16. Genesis 14, Genesis 15, 16, and 17. That's what we read in today's passage as we go through the Bible in one year. It's very exciting, you know. Four kings against five. This was the fight of nations which Abram had to go in and resolve. He was not looking for a fight, but when he learned how the kings had come to the city of Sodom and looted it and took his nephew Lot captive, Abram assembled his men with an army composed of 318 men. That's all. They traveled as far as Dan in pursuit of Lot and his captors. Now, Abram was a man of no nonsense. He gave his outnumbered troops the upper hand by planning a nighttime surprise attack against the invaders. Abram was a friend of God, and he knew that the Lord would help him in all things. He regained everything. His nephew Lot, his goods, as well as all the women, slaves, livestock that were left behind. And he returned them to the kings who had fled for their lives. Now, Abram was given the opportunity to take what he wanted, but he did not. He was cooperative with Melchizedek. Melchizedek? We'll talk about him later. The king of Salaam who worshipped God. But he would not cooperate or take anything from the king of Sodom because Abram did not want the king to be able to diminish God's glory by taking credit for his prosperity. This is the kind of man that Abraham was. And I want to tell you, I say Abraham, it's, he's not Abraham yet, but he's going to be Abraham very soon. But I want to tell you something. He knew God and he was a friend of God and God, you know, blessed him. Very interesting times. We're going to get to that over the next couple of days. The first world war, according to the Bible. Four kings against five. These are difficult names, very hard. We're going to go slow, going to try to take them carefully. But Father, help us today as we learn from your scripture. Help us with the names and help us to understand they're pronounced about five different ways. But help us, Lord, to do our best in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen. All right. Here is the first 14, 1 to 4. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, and Chedonlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bershia, king of Gomorrah, Shindab, king of Adama, and Shemember, king of Zeboin, the king of Bela, that is Zor, all of these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedelamor, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Now this is fascinating. The land where Abraham was living was in unrest, beloved. It was not steady. God sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Let me explain. God does not just give us peace everywhere we go, but sometimes he puts Christians in the midst, people who believe in God, people like you, people like me, 
who believe in the power of Jesus Christ, the healing power of Jesus Christ, he sets us in the middle of the enemy. So I praise God that we're all living alive right now and today. Praise God. That's excellent. Let's go back to the scripture. In the 14th year of Kedelamor, the kings were with him, came and attacked Rephium in Ashura Carnium and Zimzam or Zimzam in Ham and Emin in Sheva Caruthium and the Horatites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Peron, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazerzon, Tamar. Now this is fascinating in verse eight. And the king of Salem or Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out to join together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Kedolamor, king of Elam. Title, king of nations, Amrephriel, and king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the king of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and they departed, bringing me to this point. When men fight wars, there are always tragedies, always tragedies. God helps us to battle spiritually to gain lives and not to lose them. God, his fight is for people spiritually to gain the gift of eternal life. That's so important. We need to understand that. But whenever man fights, there's always collateral damage. There's always casualties, beloved. But see, when God does his work, there is not. They make their choices and their choices tell them what's going to happen. But God will always save us. Very interesting. Now we can think about that. There's a, that's a mind bomb. You'll be thinking about that later today and, or later tomorrow and you'll figure, oh, the Lord's speaking to me about this. That's true. All right. Genesis 14, verse 13, then one of one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Timbereth trees of Mamre and Amorite, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and brother of Anir, and they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Haba, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now that brings me to point number three, which is this. God gave Abram strength and ability to gain his family back. The Lord always protects and provides for his family. Let me just say, 
if you have family that you love and you're praying for to come to know Jesus Christ, praise God, continue to pray, continue to pray. They will come, beloved. God answers prayer. This whole episode of Abram taking his 318 men, which is nothing in the force of all of their kingdoms, nothing, and yet God gives them the advantage to win it, and he's not winning for himself. He comes back and he gives it all back to them. And he says, listen, I want Lot and I want his stuff. Very important, beloved. God will go after your family. And Father, I pray today for people. I pray for their families. I pray for people I know. Father, I ask that you would go after them. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that their free wills. I know they're using a free will, but I just pray, Lord, that they would make the right decision when they see that you are Lord. So Jesus, speak to them today. In Jesus' name, and we said together, amen. Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study, and our assigned reading today is Genesis chapters 14 through 17. And I want to focus specifically on chapter 15, as it provides us information relevant to Genesis chapter 24, which we'll read about over the weekend. And in Genesis 24, we learn about how Isaac and Rebekah come to be married. And it was a little bit tricky because Abraham had to find his son a wife from Padan Aram, which was quite a distance. Problem was, Abraham was now too old to make the journey himself, and he definitely wasn't going to send Isaac away from the promised land. So Abraham turned to his eldest servant to go to Padana Ram to find a wife for him. And it's this servant that I want to focus in on today, because in chapter 24, he isn't named. But his name does seem to appear in Genesis chapter 15, which is a part of our assigned reading today. Check it out. It had been 25 long years between God's initial promise to Abraham that he would have a son and his actual birth. And it would be yet another 40 years before that son would marry, something Abraham wanted to at least set in motion before he died. It was, of course, customary among pastoral tribes in that day for the marriage arrangements to be made by the parents. And that youth was to marry within his own tribe and not with foreigners. In fact, custom gave him the right to the hand of his first cousin which was rarely, if ever, resisted. Of course, Abraham had a far higher motive. He was afraid that if his son married into a Canaanitish family, he might be gradually led away from the one true God. The problem was, Abraham, now 140 years old, was far too advanced in age to make the journey himself to his father's family in Padan Aram. And sending Isaac there away from the Promised Land was also completely out of the question. Therefore, he entrusted this very important mission to his chief servant, who was the elder of his house and the one that ruled over all that he had. Although this servant remains nameless here, many believe that he is called by name elsewhere in the Bible, even if only once. Years earlier, God had promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. But Abraham pointed out an obvious problem. 
Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. In those days, among nomadic tribes, of which Abraham was, it was the chief servant who would be heir to his master's possessions and honors if there was no natural-born offspring. Since, therefore, Abraham names that inheritor as Eliezer of Damascus, many conclude that this Eliezer and the chief servant, whom Abraham later sends to find a wife for Isaac, are one and the same person. How especially significant it would be if this unnamed servant truly was Eliezer of Damascus, because he would have been the inheritor had Isaac not been born, but he lost his right of inheritance once Isaac was born, or perhaps even earlier when Ishmael was born. Nevertheless, he held no animosity. As a good servant, he looked out for the welfare of his master. Now he was the one assigned to find a wife for Isaac. As Christians, we ought to follow Eliezer's good and godly example. Clearly, he was more interested in serving God and his master than himself. So it looks like the unnamed servant of Genesis chapter 24 is actually Eliezer of Damascus, who is named in Genesis chapter 15. If this is so, then as I already mentioned, it makes things even more interesting because he's the one who would have inherited Abraham's estate had Abraham not had any natural offspring. This servant was a good and godly man, and this is a good picture of how we all should be. All too often in this world today, we're so busy serving ourselves that we forget to serve God and to put others before ourselves. And yet this is the very essence of God's law. Remember when Jesus was asked what the first and greatest commandment was in the law. He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second he said is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, Abraham was saying before he was Abraham, he was saying that, Lord, I don't have a son. I mean, I'm, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. and, and when I'm gone, I got to give it to this man. And yet God said, I will make a way. Yeah, he always does. God I always makes make a way. way. That's right. Unbelievable. Corey? All right. I want to talk about covenants today uh, because we read about cov covenants all over the Old and New Testaments. And so the concept of the ancient Near Eastern uh, covenant is extremely important for us to understand. Uh, you know, the, the whole salvation story of the Bible is presented to us in the form of covenants. Even the Bible itself is called, in the Christian world at least, the Old and New Testaments, which means the Old and New Covenants. So on its surface, a covenant is very similar to a contract, an agreed upon set of rules between two parties for their mutual benefit, a contract, right? However, what's not immediately obvious to modern readers is just how covenants worked. So in the patriarchal society of the ancient Near East that Abraham and Israel were a part of, society completely revolved around family units. And the authority and responsibility for maintaining order and survival was the patriarch, the oldest male member of a family unit. Family was responsible for family. So then what about when you needed, for one reason or the other, to team up with another family that socially had no reason to protect or care for you? you could strike a covenant, a type of contract that would make you 
like family, at least legally. As I already mentioned, we see covenants all over the Bible, and they could happen on an individual level, a tribal level, or a national level. Covenants could be parity treaties, meaning a covenant between two equals that would make the two parties like legal brothers. Covenants could also be suzerain vassal treaties, which is a covenant between non-equals. There's a powerful and less powerful party, which would create a legal relationship of father-son or even master-servant. A suzerain vassal treaty often happened in the context of an invading king. The king or leader who had conquered a people's territory would lay out everyone's rights and responsibilities, the way life would now operate. As a suzerain, he now owned the land and the people. They could live their lives, but now they owed loyalty and yearly tribute to him. As a result, the suzerain would allow the people to remain, to live on the land, and he would owe them protection. If the people re rebelled against the suzerain by not following the stipulations of the covenant or by withholding their tribute, they would lose their right to the land. At a covenant ceremony, animals would be sacrificed for a few reasons. It marked the occasion as special or set apart. It involved the godly authorities in the process. The sacrificial animals often served as a meal, and the animals showed the parties what would happen to them if they were to rebel against the covenant. They would become like the sacrificial animals, dead. For our understanding today, in Genesis 15, God was cutting a covenant with Abram. God had already made a covenant covenant promises of offspring to Abram for Abram's allegiance to God, and he also offered him land. He would give Canaan to Abram's descendants. But by Genesis 15, Abram had been waiting a long time for this promised son. He seems to have been struggling a bit. He asks, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? God creates a covenant ceremony, something that Abram would have been very familiar with. God instructs him to get sacrificial animals, which Abram does, and he sacrifices, cuts in half, and arranges. When God shows up, though, and outlines the stipulation of the covenant, it's God, the suzerain, who passes through the sacrificial animals, not Abram, the lesser party. In an amazing twist of expectation, God promises to Abraham that it is him, God, who will pay with his divine life if the covenant is broken. Amazingly, the Bible clearly portrays the descendants of Abram breaking the covenant. And what happens? God comes to earth as Christ Jesus, and he offers his life to make a new covenant. His body was broken for us. And we see that as well as when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, he said, the Lord will provide a lamb. Mm -hmm. So this, this idea was introduced to him already by this covenant. That is an amazing story. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And the, the, really, that's kind of where I was going today with the blessings of God, because we see here in this chapter of uh, Genesis chapter 14, Lot's captivity and rescue by his uncle Abram, who goes to rescue him. And he comes back with everything. Uh, the kings had taken off and, and Abram went in with 318 men, I believe it is, uh, his army, those men that had grown up in his household. And he took them out and they were the lesser of the armies, yet because of God's help, they won, they, they got Lot back, they got everything back, and they go to Melchizedek, who was um, the king of Salem at that time. He was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram, and he said to him, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. They gave the honor 
and the praise to God for what had happened. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then the next part of that verse says, and he gave him a tithe of all. Abram willingly gave from what he had to God because he understood what God had done for him. And it's the same with us. When we commit our lives to serve and to follow God, we understand that everything that we are and everything that we have is from God and his blessings to us. We can't outgive God. The more that we pour into him with our lives, the more that he blesses us. And that's not why we do it. We serve God because we love him and we understand the sacrifice that he has given to us. The scripture says that God loved us first and that he gave. He gave his son so that we could live, that we could have freedom from our sins, that we could have that restored relationship with God. And that's what we are all about here on this program. If you're just discovering us this week, I'm so glad that you've decided to stay and watch the program today. We are a family who are committed to going through the Bible, to learn with you. Together, we will learn through the Bible. Ryan and Corey and Rod and myself, we don't get it right all the time and we don't have all the answers, but we know that the answers are in this wonderful book, the Word of God. And we want you, like us, to make time in your lives every day every day, because it's the bread of life. It's the bread of life. It's the living water. It keeps our soul healthy and good. You know, we don't just eat once a week, do we? We eat every day because we need that nourishment for our physical bodies. So we need to read the Word of God. So I would encourage you, don't make excuses. Spend time. Do you make time with God and His Word every day, even a little bit? with praying and reading his words, I encourage you to do it. There was a time in my life, Rod, when um, we were trying to make a decision and our youngest son sent me um, a video and it was of somebody just going, do it, do it, do it. And it was done and it just ma it made me giggle and giggle and giggle. Do you remember that video, Corey and yep, Ryan, I, I showed Absolutely. you? Brandon sent it to me and oh my goodness, just do it. Don't make excuses. Get with God. Get in his word every single day. Do it. I want to encourage you to go to Pastor Rod Hembry and go to that in YouTube. This is a great place. We give our videos on the Psalms and our videos on asking the questions and also our videos on all of the programs called Beyond the Call and all the rest of them are there. That's at YouTube, Pastor Rod Hembry. Today, we need to pray. Lord, help me to do your will. Help me to do your work. I give my life to you, Father.
in Jesus' name.